Blog Talk Radio. Please stay tuned for Brandon's Buzz. I'm Joan Van Ark, and the buzz is on Tuesday. <laughs> so if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it, baby, when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz. Place to be. Hi, this is Peggy Scott Adams, and guess what? I am buzzing with my man, Brandon on Brandon Buzz. This is Michael Brainerd on Brandon's Buzz. Are you buzzed? This is Maya Bialik, and you are lucky enough to be listening to Brandon's Buzz. <laughs> Hey guys, and welcome to Brandon's Buzz. It's April 14th, 2009. It's 6 p.m. here in Texas, 7 p.m. on the East Coast, and 4 p.m. out in sunny California. And I have a great show lined up for you today, and a great show tomorrow. Tomorrow afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, with a fantastic musician named Billy Vera of Billy Vera and the Beaters. You remember a huge hit he had in 1986, 1987 called At This Moment, uh, which was a huge hit after it was played on Family Ties incessantly. Um, and he's coming. He's a voiceover artist now, and he does television theme work, and he's still very involved in music. And he's coming by the Buzz tomorrow to discuss music and his career and songwriting and life as an artist. And it's going to be great fun. That's tomorrow afternoon, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, right here on Brandon's Buzz. Uh, you can find me and my show at www.blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. Um, that's this show's website. You can listen to old shows, and you can download old shows from that site. Uh, you can also leave comments, and you can send me an email and you know, tell me what you like about the show, what you don't like, what I could be doing better, what you'd like to see on the show. Um, I welcome any and all comments, positive and negative. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's great not to be able to do this in a vacuum. It's great to have actual input from the audience listening. So please drop me a line. You can also visit my blog at brandonsbuzz.com. There is a full radio archive. A radio button at the top of the page and you can listen to old shows and you can see some of the great banners that my pal Joanne has made to advertise the show. That's at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com. You can also download the show iTunes. Uh, in the iTunes Music Store, up in the search box, type in Brandon's Buzz. Go to the podcast section. Um, you can download old shows individually as podcasts or you can subscribe to the show and have each new episode uh, automatically download to your iTunes as it's posted. So I'm all over the Internet. There's no, there's no excuse not to be able to find me because I'm all over the place. Just Google Brandon's Buzz, and one of these three outlets will pop up. And, uh, you know, as I said, there's no excuse not to find me because I am everywhere. And I have a great guest today. You know, she's an actress from the old school, and she traded in life in the theater for a triumphant run in daytime television, uh, where among her two decades in multiple roles, she won a well-deserved Emmy portraying Ray Woodard on the classic serial Ryan's Hope. She moved behind the camera in the late 80s, trading in pancake and lip gloss for paper and pen, serving on the writing staffs of six different daytime dramas, in addition to striking out on her own as a novelist. Her fifth novel, Serendipity, has just been released by Ballantine Books, and she's come by the buzz tonight to discuss her extraordinary career both in front of and behind the scenes. What a great thrill to welcome to my show tonight a true legend, the terrific and divine Louise Schaefer. Thank you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? 
I'm doing very well, and I, I'm very excited to have you on the show tonight. I've been a big fan for a long time, and <laughs> it, it's great fun to be able to chat with you. I'm, I've been looking forward to it for ever since I heard about it, I've got to tell you. I'm so happy to hear that. So let's get the boring stuff out of the way at the beginning. Let's get the 60-second bio on Louise Schaefer. Where were you born? Where were you raised? Okay, okay, great. I was born in Woodbridge, Connecticut, which is outside New Haven. Um, I went to school. Well, I I went. I did a brief tour in college, and then I went to Yale School of Drama. Um, Came into New York. Did a couple of Broadway shows, got a soap opera. Um, the first one was Search for Tomorrow. Yes. Really liked, um, I liked the format. Uh, I liked the security of it, to be honest with you. Um, was, it, was it still live in those days, or, or had it gone to tape already? It had gone to tape, but Search was 15 minutes at that time. And yeah. in those days, the way we shot the shows you um you had the camera for x amount of time so it was sort of like being a lot being live i mean i, I think you. if somebody had like actually had a heart attack and died on set they might have stopped but otherwise it wasn't going to happen so you basically i mean i worked with a kid who used to it was back in the days when we all wore falls if you remember that you're here we we whop our hair on top of our head and then stick a piece of hair on top of that and this kid was like forever yanking my fall off and, doing and it didn't really you know nobody cared I mean, we just kept on going so it was not a um it wasn't like it was by the time I left the business where you know if you had a boom shot uh they stopped everything you went back and you did it all over again I mean we we were as close to live as you could get. And then I did Edge while it was still live. Okay. Uh, because Edge didn't go Edge didn't go to tape until sometime in the late seventies, early eighties. Oh, late. Yeah, yeah. It was real late. Um so I did that one. I did actually did have the experience of going live. But my first show when I played Search, uh, we were taped. Was it, was it completely nerve-wracking, the, the experience of live television, or, or did you get used to it fairly quickly? And, and kind of well, you know, so many of us, <laughs> I feel like such an old crock, so many of us were theater-trained. Um, you know, we'd, we'd done summer stock, we'd, wherever we went to school, we were trained for live theater. So we kind of expected to carry on you know, and keep it going till the guys came out and said, now we're going to do the mop and glow commercial. Um, no matter what. Yeah, and, and I kind of liked that. Um, I uh, An awful lot of really creative stuff happened when you had to think on your feet. And I thought, I thought, also that that there was something there was something very liberating about that also the fact that in those days you didn't have that sort of it'll play again on soapnet and it'll play again over here and it'll play again over here. so sort of like if you screwed up you know uh-huh. to, if you screw up today you know 
It's there. I mean, it's yeah. engraved in concrete, God help you. Back then, it was sort of like, okay, so I really had an off day. Guess what? There's tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And nobody's really going to remember this. And what people will remember is, you know, four months from now, how am I doing? How, you know, a whole body of work. So I, I always felt it was, I kind of felt it was very liberating. I mean, it was scary. But I kind of think acting is supposed to be scary. Exactly. And, you know, as you said, there was no such thing as, as the Internet or the soap press. Or, yeah, you know, the, yeah. You know, there, there weren't message boards critiquing every little thing about every little thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I know there are message boards doing that now. Um, frankly, if I were still acting, and I hate to admit this, I would not – I would not um, – I would not let myself know what was on them because it would just, it would freeze me. Uh-huh. I mean, I'm somebody who can't watch myself. I never could. I mean, you know, I, I, I like watched myself once and spent the next two months trying not to smile in a certain way because I didn't like what I'd seen. So I, you know, I'm like the, the centipede, you know, it can only walk if it doesn't think about what to do with all those legs. I, it would just, it would just drive me right over the edge to know how much criticism is going on right now and how, how minutely Everything is being watched, oh, yes. which is not to say that I, I I think it shouldn't be that way. That's that's great. And given where the soaps are right now, God love the people that are still that involved. Mm-hmm. But um, as an actor, I probably would do my level best not to know about any of that. <laughs> you know, I, I would imagine. I mean, I, I don't have any experience with it because obviously I'm not I'm not famous in any in any measure, but. You know, it's only human nature to want to know what people are saying about you. So I, I can only imagine how difficult it is not to, you know, get a search engine up and type in your name and just see what's out there. I can I can only imagine that the, the temptation is very strong, and you must have amazing willpower to stay away from it. Because well, I don't. So, so I, many people swear that that they never look. I I truly don't. Um, I because it devastates me. I mean. Um, and, and it's odd, uh, bad criticism, you know, this sends me to bed for three weeks and I can't function. And when it's good, I mean, when people like what you've done, then I'm usually pretty much destroyed too, because then I keep trying to do whatever it was I did that pleased people the last time. So either way, you know, I'm kind of screwed. So it's just better for me to try, and, and I'm pretty good about it. Um, I, I, with my books, um, they know my my editor. Every once in a while, if it's a really lovely review, she'll send it to me. But by and large, my editor knows. Don't, because it just makes me it makes me self conscious. That's all. Absolutely. You and know, I'm a real people. I mean, I'm somebody who 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 is so desperate to please people. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I'm too old, and it should have gone away by now, but it hasn't. So I'm sort of like, I mean, it's really pathetic. And 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 you know, I spend my life kind of going, please love me. So there's, <laughs> it's sort of like uh, very bad for somebody with my head 
to know what people are saying about her. D did that feed you as an actress in any way? What do you mean? Uh, just the idea of, of wanting to please people, wanting to uh, make people proud of you, I guess, in a way. Oh, yeah. Did, oh, did, sure. that, did, that, did that help feed your desire as an actor? Oh, I think that's that's probably why I got into it. Okay. I, I, I would imagine. Um, you know, I, 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 okay, I don't really believe that if you're the shy type that genuinely doesn't want any kind of attention, you become uh -huh. an actor. I mean, I know people say that, but boy, I have a hard time believing it. Mm -hmm. You know, I because there are so many other things you could do. <laughs> You know, you don't have to put yourself in front of 50 million people. I, I think if you've made that choice somewhere along the line, you like applause. Exactly. It, that's my theory. Exactly. You know, you mentioned uh, Yale School of Drama, and that's a pretty famous breeding ground for successful actors. Um, did, did you go to school with anybody that we might know today as... as Hi. Um, I don't know. Bobby Klein. Robert Klein. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. He was there. Um, okay. Um, when I was there, actually, there weren't that many. Uh, I was there when the school was kind of going through a transition. It it became a lot better right after I left. Um, so we had uh, Bobby Klein, but Robert Klein left after a year, which a lot of really good people did. Robin Strasser was at Yale for the for the first year that I was there. As a matter of fact, Robin and I were roommates at Helen oh, wow. Hadley Hall. Oh yeah, that's a very little known trivia fact. I, I uh, did not know that. Yeah, Robin Robin was there for the first year. I stayed all three years. Robin left yeah. after one year. Uh, we had met at Williamstown. She was an actress, and that's like the summer stock company that came out of Yale. Um, every, all there was a guy at Yale, a, a directing teacher at Yale called Nikos Sakharopoulos, and Nikos had a theater up in Williamstown, and it was sort of like. All you wanted if you were a Yale drama school kid was to be asked to be at Williamstown. Anyway, Robin was there. She was in the company. I was a um, student apprentice there. Robin is younger than I am, but uh, she she had she had caught Inko's eye. She was in the company. I was one of the kids that was going to go to Yale in the fall so i was i was in the student company i hadn't i hadn't uh, become a pro yet anyway we met and then we roomed for a year in helen hadley hall are you still in touch uh every once in a while we bump into each other um but but not a lot um i don't know i i i think our our lives took fairly different paths, particularly particularly after I left the business, you know. Mm -hmm. but, but Robin and I, uh, yeah, and Robin, you know, you know how it is in our business. Robin 
shot Robin's show shot over on 66th Street in that big complex, and Ryan's was over way over in Hell's Kitchen when I was on it. It wasn't even in the same building, so we really didn't sort of run into each other much. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, you're so busy doing your own show that you barely have time to breathe, much less you know. Yeah. It, it, yeah, it, it, it's it's a it's a funny business. It, I think people who do live theater, I don't know this for a fact, but I think people who do live theater tend to have uh, more connections. Um, we we kind of, you know, by three or four o'clock in the afternoon, we you'd be done. Mm-hmm. And you'd sort of go home and have a family. I mean, it was it was not a, it, it, in my experience, or maybe it's just me as a person. I mean, my idea of kind of like the fourth ring of hell is to have to hang around a dark bar. Um, so I wasn't somebody who who enjoyed all of that stuff, and um, uh-huh. I I I tended. I, but you do tend to make friends really with the people on the shows that you're sure. on. I would imagine that you see those people more than you see your own families at, at the at the. At, oh yeah! The, oh yeah! Right. Oh yeah! It if if your story is heavy, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so you know, you mentioned Ryan's Hope, and that's kind of the the soap that you're most famous for, most well known for. I guess um, so. You were on that show during what were what were very much its glory years, I think. You know, the late seventies to the to the early and mid eighties. Okay. Um, uh, you know, for a while it seemed as though Ryan's Hope was ABC's kind of prestige show, and right. then and then Luke and Laura came along and made General Hospital the show to watch. And you know, from an outsider's point of view, it seemed as though ABC began to realize how much money they could make off these daytime shows, and that's when the tinkering and the micromanaging began. Um, is that a yeah. fair statement or, or no? I don't really know. Um, see, you probably actually know more about the history than I do. Um, that having been said, my my feeling is that all of daytime, not just Ryan's, but all of daytime, started suffering when all of a sudden it seemed to me there was this mandate for we've got to get the kids. Mm-hmm. And it was like overnight these shows had to hook the teenagers on up. And there was a, an idea that because MTV ha, was was doing quick, quick cuts, yeah that we should cut back on uh, the length of scenes, which given the fact that daytime is basically a verbal medium, I don't care what you do, it it is essentially a dialogue-driven medium because you just don't have the time or the budget to make it an action medium. Um, To do what it did, I always felt you needed those longer scenes that allowed you to explore relationships and and interaction between humans. And that's what we offered that nothing else in television mm-hmm. was offering. But all of a sudden there it it seemed to me 
overnight it almost it became we got to get the kids we got to get the kids watching we got to hook the youngsters and when that started then then there were all these weird sort of mandates that uh-huh. started coming down you know well you know Luke and Laura got the kids and so in many ways Luke and Laura was a blessing and a curse because well, maybe that's it. I mean, I, I don't know where that wisdom came from. Uh, I don't know where that idea came from, that all of a sudden, daytime television, because when I started in daytime, and I know this is way back in the dark ages, but when I started in daytime, you had older, it was kind of like the place to be an older woman because there was lots of story for Mary Stewart and, you know, Sherita Bauer and and all those old-time women. And I remember when I made the choice that I wanted to stay in daytime, I thought to myself, I'll never be a huge star because daytime actors weren't when I Mm -hmm. started, but I'll probably always work. Because it is a place where you see middle-aged women still carrying story on their backs. And then all of a sudden, it it was all about youth stories. There always had been youth stories, but there had been other stuff as well. And all of a sudden, it was all about youth stories. And if you were in your late 30s, you were kind of elderly and not really interesting and it just it just sort of flipped which of course as an actress pissed me off but beyond that it was I I'm not sure it was healthy for the medium because again I think one of the things the medium offered was a generational appeal it was about families and different layers of families and and kind of it was kind of you know if you want to get artsy about it it was kind of like dickensian and it was it was all about family sagas and and i remember i mean i remember when i was doing a a show called where the heart is and uh paul and claire were writing it and they wanted to bring in a character and a young character who was going to be featured and the idea was of course you're going to bring in this character's mother and father because you want to see where this character came from I mean yes she's going to be the love interest but you need to place her in a family you need to give the, the the audience a sense of her history and her background by the time we got into the 80s and we were doing, the idea was then, oh, no, 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 you don't want to do that. My God, you'll bring in more old people and who wants older people? No, 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 it doesn't matter. Don't need to tell everybody about that. You know, a couple of sentences, that'll be it. <laughs> and you didn't have people as grounded with their characters as a result, I think. I mean, that's like my two cents. <laughs> you know, it's interesting what you said about about how when you first started, daytime stars really weren't big stars. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I read an interview that you did 
earlier today. Uh, I read the interview today. You didn't do it today, but um, in which you said that you know when you started, you made a, you made a great point that I had never heard before or had never really considered before, and that was when you started. You know, the soaps were kind of an extension of the advertising. Absolutely. Um, the sure. advertising kind of arms of the corporations. They right. were they were there solely to to uh, kind of find a way to get people to watch the commercials. Yeah. And oh, absolutely. So I, had, I had never really considered that before I read you say that today, and, and I, I was wondering if I could get you to kind of expound on that a little bit. Well, I mean, I, I you know, as I said, uh, when I started very often, if you were auditioning for a soap, you'd go to one of the big advertising agencies. <clears throat> and you would... Um, you, uh, uh, I mean, and very often the people who were in production were guys in those days mostly uh, who had come out of the advertising agencies. I mean, they'd been writing commercials or producing commercials, and then they would slip over and produce a soap. Um, it, it gradually changed, but initially, that was a very big deal, and you, if you were doing a soap, you, you had the liaison from Procter and Gamble or or Colgate Palmolive or whoever, would be very much a part of all the meetings and that kind of thing. Um, the, these shows were designed initially to sell product; uh, they were never considered an art form. I don't think, or even, I mean, they had to be entertaining because, of course, you wanted people to watch enough so that they'd watch the commercials. But it wasn't, it it wasn't considered something worthy of, of a lot of attention on its own. And again, you know, to my way of thinking, what that did was an awful lot of really great stuff particularly in the writing, Mm -hmm. got through under the radar. I mean, um, you know, I guess the classic case that we all, well, anybody who's a a soap history buff, you know, the Guiding Light did the first uh, uterine cancer story ever seen in any medium with Burt Bauer. Um, they did date rape uh, on another show uh, way back when they did a rape storyline. Um, they they did an awful lot of highly experimental stuff that they'd never have gotten away with at nine time because nobody cared. <laughs> nobody was watching and nobody really gave a damn, uh, which was very liberating on a creative level. Didn't didn't daytime also do television's first abortion? I think it did. I think it did. As I I, I think it did. Yeah. Wow. So I mean, but you but you could do that because nobody. I mean, what did they care? It was it was a very commercial kind of you know enterprise, and and nobody was really watching it all that much. None of the big time suits were watching it, so you got away with murder. And when did that start to change? Are are you aware of of when? Boy, I really, I really can't say. You know, I did a lot. I've done a lot of daytime in my life, but oddly, 
I was never somebody who had one job for 35 years. <laughs> I, but, I mean, like a lot of daytime actors of my generation, ha- are, you know, are walking around have that kind of a resume. I think I was always a little too quirky to 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 sustain a long-term gig like that. So I I used to usually come in and I'd do something for two for maybe two or three years. I think my longest gig was Ryan's. Um so I I didn't kind of get to watch it. I sort of okay. dipped in and out. Uh, I would imagine somebody who's really been around for a long time could tell you tell you more than I could. I just know that by the time I've got on to Ryan's, Ryan's was kind of an anomaly because Paul and Claire still owned it when I went on it. And then they sold it to ABC. And it was when I... Under under extreme pressure, I understand. I I guess. I don't know. I, I never knew what went on behind the scenes. But I think I think when I when I first went on the show, it still had a kind of a boutique feel. Uh, but boy, daytime had changed a lot since the gig I'd done before, which was uh, I think it was Edge of Night, yeah, because I hadn't I hadn't done daytime in a while by then, and then it became really big business. And there was a lot at stake. <laughs> and, boy, that's a kiss of death, I think, creatively. Not that I mean that in a, that there was a kiss of death for that show, but just yes. that's a whole different kind of attitude and approach. Absolutely. You know, th- this may not be a fair question to ask you, but but I'll, I'll take a shot anyway. Um, why do you think that, that Ryan's Hope never really benefited from the ABC ratings boom of the early 80s, led by General Hospital. Was it just that that show was never really constructed to appeal to everybody, or was there a bigger story? I don't know. I I really don't know. Um, didn't it? it? It didn't? I mean... Uh, I don't think it did, especially to the same degree that, say, All My Children and One Life to Live did. Um, okay. It, it could have been the time slot, maybe, or it could have just been that that the show was never constructed to be a, a mass appeal show. Oh well, for one thing, it was a half hour, wasn't it? Yeah, yes. I think it mm-hmm. was a half hour, mm-hmm. right? In the mm-hmm. it, it, was it a half hour when that whole kind of thing boomed? Yeah, it was a half hour for the for the entire duration of its of its life. So. Okay. Um, so that might have been something. Um, I don't know. I, I would just say off the top of my head that I think it, it was, it was a very different kind of show. Um, it, and it had an incredibly fanatically loyal mm-hmm. fan base. But I don't think it was for everybody. Yeah. I mean, you you had people quoting Yates on the show, <laughs> you know. Um, you had people, uh, you know, you, you you were talking. I mean, they did a kind of '80s Irish Rose story. They they dealt with ethnic um, 
ethnic characters. They dealt with they dealt with an awful lot of kind of heady stuff that Absolutely. And I think that that you know there's a very strong and loving audience for that, but it may just not be the kind of audience that w- found um, General Hospital appealing. Especially with all of its with all with all of its um, action adventure storylines and car chases and on the run stories and all that. Um, I don't. So- I, I mean, I don't really know. I've never really watched General Hospital. I must admit. Um, I, I did a I did a trial for it, so I watched it then. But other than that, I I I've never I've never really watched it. Um, I guess because I didn't really know anybody who was well. I knew a couple of people, but I didn't know them very well on that show. I I tended every once in a while I'd check in with um, all my kids, you know, to see. Ruthie and a few people like that, and yeah. and of course Robin and Erica. Absolutely. Uh, so I don't really know what General Hospital was offering at that time, but my sense is that Ryan was just a much Ryan's was a much quieter, maybe a more subtle show. Mm-hmm. I don't really know. Got you know, I had. I had uh, uh, a great actor, Gordon Thompson, on my show recently. Oh, yeah. What a and love. He, he portrayed a uh, kind of a haughty Egyptologist at one time on Lion. Yeah, Earth. yeah. And he, he talked about how the storyline didn't really work because, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't everybody at the bar. You know, it was, it was something totally foreign to what Ryan told yeah. at that time. But he, he discussed at, at kind of great length how seriously everybody took their jobs on Ryan's Hope. And how that necessarily may not have been the case on other shows. Really? Um, how, how did you find it? Did, did you find that? By the way, I, I wasn't that when when Gordon came on. Wasn't Danny Hugh Kelly originally slated to do that story, and then he he had an out clause and he got a pilot, and so they kind of had to switch the story around and uh, make you know it what? about Gordon's character. I really don't know. He he just discussed how Claire had gone to Egypt and had yeah. fallen in love with the place and decided that she wanted some of that on her on her show and so she wrote yeah. the storyline and and uh, that's that's really kind of all we talked about. Um, oh, okay. So I don't I don't really know the answer to that question, but, but I, um, I I just have a vague feeling that something like that went on. Like I said, I mean, I used to kind of go in and start trying to be Ray at like seven in the... I'm a very methody actress, so crazy and so pretentious. But so I I really don't have a sense of a lot of what was going on backstage. Um, In answer to your question, I thought, yeah, Ryan's, Ryan's was unique, I think, because there were a lot of stage actors. I mean... And and you know it's a funny thing. There's usually somebody who kind of sets the tone on a set in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And when you've got a two-time Tony winner like Helen Gallagher, you bet. You know, and she's the mother of us all. You didn't show up on. I mean, Helen is one of the great ladies that I've known in my lifetime. 
And you did not show up on that set unprepared. And it's not that she ever did a diva turn because God knows she wasn't one. It was just something about Helen. You didn't want to walk into a scene with Helen not knowing your lines. Absolutely. And I don't know why. I mean, it's not like she ever threw a tantrum or did anything like that. Mm-hmm. I think you just felt like you didn't want to embarrass yourself that way, you know. You you and and Helen. You were, you were in the you were in the presence of greatness and wanted to rise to that level. Yeah, or you just I mean you just didn't want to waste your time trying yeah. to figure out what you were going to do because God knows she knew, and she was so meticulous and so specific. Um, and you had and that sort of started it. Um. And then, of course, you knew how Claire and Paul felt about the material and how hard they worked on it. And you knew that they considered their cast very special. And you kind of felt you'd better live up to that. Well, and you certainly did. Uh, you, you won an Emmy for the role that you were playing. What was the Emmy experience like for you? The Emmy experience? Uh, winning the Emmy, you mean? Absolutely. Okay. Well, I'd been nominated, I don't know, what, three times maybe? Mm-hmm. Never got it. Certainly didn't expect to win it that year. So my husband's child had just come to live with us and he they were out in the country and roger said you know christopher's got a a band recital tonight and he'd really love me to come and i said oh for god's sake go i'm not going to win anyway so i went and i didn't even buy a new dress uh what i wore for the emmys was a mini dress that my uh mother-in-law a kind of white and silver little mini dress that my mother-in-law had worn at uh in the 60s she'd she'd bought it and she'd given it to me and uh I bought went out that day and bought a pair of white chiffon pants to go under it so it was kind of like a little pants outfit Wow. And um, my agent looked at me at one point as I was heading in for heading into the the, the hotel, and she said, "You got to wear some jewelry for God's sake." And she took off her earrings and gave them to me. And then um, I was upstairs in the dressing room that they sort of had for all of us, and I was trying to put some makeup on my face. God love Lori Laughlin was there, and I spilled makeup down the front of my dress, which I always do. And she helped. She and her mother sponged me off. So I basically won the Emmy in a 1960s hand-me-down dress. <laughs> Uh, that was stained with Max Factor number whatever, <laughs> and um, my agent Honey's um, fake earrings. <laughs> That's what I wanted. To... Wow, were the Emmys televised at that time or no? The, uh, oh yeah, I I won the first year that they were not televised since they started televising them. Because that was the year when uh, NBC did not have anybody up, and it was their turn to uh, 
to 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 do the show and they said well the hell with this i mean we don't have any dog in this fight we're not going to televise it so not only was my husband at the band game he couldn't have even seen me on television if he had wanted to i when i i went up there i think i said are you guys kidding when they gave it to me mm-hmm. and i if i didn't that was truly i mean i, I was kind of like could we have a recount? I mean, are you sure? Because Bryn Sayer had, had done this fabulous job, and a whole bunch of other people were so good. And I just was kind of like, huh? You've got to be kidding me. I mean, thank you, but why? <laughs> Do you remember who else you were, you were nominated alongside? Uh, there was Bryn, I think, and who else? They were all a bunch of, they were all wonderful. I mean, they were really fine, good actresses. And it was sort of like, have you actually seen me? I'm, I mean, I'm a nice person, but, you know, you got real heavy weights here. <laughs> Don't you think that, that that in some ways though it was a testament to how great Claire's writing was? <sighs> Probably. Um, yeah, yeah. I I think that I can't even remember what my story was that year. I I can't. And by the way, I don't mean to put it down. I was terribly, terribly grateful to have won that. Oh, I was so just stunned. Been, I was just stunned. But I, but I was stunned. I mean, truly. It, it, just because there were so many really <laughs> fine people there. Um, I, I can't even remember what they were, what my storyline was. I, uh, I, just, I just don't remember it. Okay. How did you come to be a writer on Claire's staff? Uh, <clears throat> I was... Uh, I was I had moved to LA um in the hopes of you know revamping my acting career mm-hmm. and uh that had so not happened <laughs> and I was did, back did, did the Emmy kind of empower you in that in that pursuit or not really Oh no no I got fired I mean okay. there was there you know they couldn't have gouged me out of there with a crowbar. I I I liked having a steady gig. I'm I'm not I'm not a, a gambler. I'm I'm not a risk taker at all. I don't like that. So I was I was perfectly happy. Um, I mean I would have stayed there forever, but they fired me, which was you know really the best thing they could have done. Um, and and I I went out to L A. And I I have been to L.A. several times in my life, and I, I did a series for Norman Lear out there, which was fun. I truly loved him. He was a great guy. But by and large, you know, I, I do not understand L.A. I, I, in my soul, I don't get it. And, and I'm always kind of like saying when I get back to America, when I'm out there, which is not. 
me being mean. It's just I truly don't feel like it's. I mean, it just feels out of the world to me. Anyway, so I've I I got this job to go back to um, all my children to play Goldie for six months. And uh, while I was there, I I I thought for a while. I mean, I met Francesca. And and she and I had a talk, and basically what what we both agreed was, I mean, I said, look, I am never getting my face done, okay? I mean, that's just not going to happen. And so I think my options for employment are getting more and more limited. Hello? Yes. Now off the host queue? <laughs> Yes, that's a that's a quirk in the system. It's it's one of those annoying little things that they're addressing. But okay. they recently they recently revamped their their phone system, and and that's just one of the things that happened. Oh, okay. So, anyway, very that. very simply, um, you know, the kind of like the handwriting was on the wall, and I called Claire and I said, you know, I've always yeah. loved to write. Would you mind sending me a few breakdowns, and I'm going to try to write some scripts from them. And if you ever have a second, just look at them and tell me if you think, uh, you know, if you could give me a few hints. I'm going to try to teach myself to write dialogue because I need to earn a living, and I just don't think it's going to be happening much more as an actress. And yeah, it's, it's it's so funny you say that because, you know, and I don't want to name names, but you know, when you tune into soaps these days and you see some of your all-time favorite actresses who have clearly had major work done in an attempt to kind of keep up their appearance. Right. You know, it's so difficult to take them seriously because you just can't stop looking at their faces. And it just it breaks your heart in a way because, you know, it's it, it completely, in some ways it just decimates their credibility as an actress. Well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know that it was something I should have done if I had wanted to stay in the business, uh, I believe. And I really made the choice that that was just not who I was. And, but then I never fought storylines for youth either. I mean, you know, I know, I know people who with great intelligence, which I totally lacked, would <laughs> refuse to allow themselves to be made into the mothers of young women who could possibly turn them into grandmothers. I mean, I know women who had it in their contracts. And and it was a smart move. It was really bright. Uh, it was a move that never dawned on me. Um, I'm really not very savvy, never have been. I mean, I always really thought if you just did your work, you'd always get a gig. And by the time I figured out that, you know, it's an awful lot about how much you look, what you look like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was kind of too, too late. <laughs> You know, and and that you you, you might you might want to sort of protect yourself a little bit that way. It, it just was dumb of me. And but it, but it I, worked I, out for the best because you you moved on to a triumphant career behind the scenes. I mean, yeah, and I really, really, I really, truly, um, well, writing for daytime. Anyway, Claire hired me. That's the end of that story. 
um, I, I wrote some breakdown. I wrote some scripts for her. She hired me. I did her show for a year. And after that, I was kind of like a dialogue writer, um, which was a mixed bag for me. Um, it got me it got me over the hump of thinking about myself as an actor and into thinking about myself as a writer and writing is 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 a whole different thing temperamentally and emotionally because it's it's whereas the most collaborative thing i think you can do in the world is be an actor uh one of the most solitary things you yeah. can do is to be a writer so it was yeah. like i got through all of that but i don't what I learned about myself is that I do not play and work well with others. I'm I'm really a solo act when I write. And I like writing my own stories and my own characters and everyone and and so I think I was I was an okay soap writer but probably not as disciplined as I should have been. Um because because there were always things I wanted to do with those characters, which just sort of didn't always jive with what the characters were. I, I mean, you, it's a funny line you write as a walk as a soap writer. You have to be very, very creative. You can't just take the stuff that they give you and kind of, repeat it back you you've really got to put your own self into it but you still have to say in the parameters of somebody else's story and somebody else's characters so it's you have to be very creative but at the same time you have to play by the rules and it's really? it's it's a very it's a very wild not everybody can do it well and i got fired a lot um <laughs> but then i started writing my own books which yeah. And and I think it is the career that I was meant to have, truly. Absolutely. I mean, as much as I loved acting, uh, this is this is really the career for me. In terms of the way that you approach kind of characters and voices and uh, dramatic situations, how dramatic is the difference between soap writing and novel writing? Oh, it's totally different. Um, um, soap writing, as I said, um, you, you're working off a breakdown, um, and you you have to figure out a way to put your mind in the mind of the person who created that breakdown to understand what it is that they want it to say about the story and the characters. A big part of novel writing is you get to choose the incidents. And that that so that and that's a huge part of storytelling. Um it you know you can go as far out or not as you wish. As a novelist, I uh, in my new book, I uh, I actually lifted an incident from my own life um, that I think says an enormous amount about the character. Um, I would not have had that freedom if I were writing a soap. Wow. 
So it's a very different, you know, it's 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 a very different head. Um, and as I said, you know, my, I have I have a couple of friends who are brilliant at at soap writing, mm-hmm. and boy, my hats off to them <laughs> because that's that's hard mm-hmm. to 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 be creative and original and deeply emotionally invested in a situation that is not of your own creativity that's rough i don't i i don't think i pulled it off that often <laughs> whereas being being invested emotionally in your own material is the easiest thing in the world in some ways what do you mean? Well, I, you know, I mean, I, I've taken a stab at, at novel writing, and and you know, sometimes, I mean, there's nothing worse than, than you know, having everything in your head exactly the way you want it, and staring at that blank page and trying to translate between your head and your fingers. I mean, the, you know, in some ways, it's it's the loneliest, coldest place on earth. Oh sure. Oh no, it's lonely and awful, but but. Um... If it's in your head, you can get it down on the paper, can't you? Uh, conceivably, yes, but it's it's sometimes easier said than done. At least I found that to be my experience. Have you have you finished a novel? I have, uh, more or less, yes, and then I have several unfinished um, um, projects, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, because uh, see. My problem when I'm writing my novels is I always know where it's going to end up. I mean, yes. that's that's given. And don't you and almost have to? I I don't know. I mean, I have friends who start out and don't know where they're going. I I am not somebody who can do that. I kind of know I know what the book is supposed to be about. I know where the book is going to end up. I don't, um, and I can't really start it until I know all of that. But the choice of the incidences which are going to tell that story, I usually get about midway through, and then I start having, I, I go like, I'll have, about four days in my head, and I write it, and then I have a miserable, horrible day where I'm sort of walking around, banging my head, walking into walls. You know, my husband's like, why are you talking to yourself? And and what I'm trying to do is come up with the next chunk. And then I write the next chunk, and I write it out, and then I'm back to, you know, the horrible day. Um and it, I say this all the time, but I find that, you know, those are the days when I clean the kitty litter a lot because mm-hmm. I find I get a lot of epiphanies cleaning the <laughs> kitty litter. Well, because it's a, it's a kind of a disgusting thing to do, so you're doing it, but you're not really thinking about it, so your kind of right brain can function and spin stuff. You know, or you, or you sit in front of a really dumb TV show and play solitaire, and it's sort of mindless, but it's because if you sit and try to think it through, you know, I mean, if you keep beating at your head, 
all that happens is your brain starts to feel like it's bleeding and you get nowhere. So you have to kind of walk away from it, or at least I do, knowing that you need to come up with this. And your brain is going, okay, yeah, I get it. I know. It's got to happen. But leave me alone because you've been poking at me for hours now and I just haven't got it. All right? And then you kind of wander around and do something else that kind of half takes your attention and that's usually when it'll come to you. Mm-hmm. As a novel, how has your process changed since you started? I mean, I, if, I, if I'm correct, your first novel was published in 94. Yeah. So we're talking about 15. Um, in terms of your process as a writer, how has it changed in those 15 years or has it changed? Um... Well, the process of it that I just described to you has pretty much stayed the same. Um, I think what's happened is I have a lot more faith now in my right brain than I did. I do believe that at some point it'll come, whereas I used to just panic. Um, you know, and, and, and just, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, I'll never get it. I haven't got a book. Blah. And I also now, so I, I, I think basically the way I work hasn't changed, but I know now. I mean, I know that at a halfway point in a book, I I do this, most of the people I know who write books do this. At some point in the book, you're going to wake up in the middle of the night and go, I don't have a book. I have nothing. I have a bunch of words. This is just all made out of clouds and smoke, and it's going to go away, and I, there's nothing there. And you know that, uh, that's how you're going to feel. And so you take a Tylenol PM and go back to sleep because, <laughs> you know, it'll look better literally in the morning. Absolutely. And, and, and um, so that's one thing. Um, so basically I would say I probably do what I did. I just, um, I'm a little more serene about it than I was. Does that make any sense? It it does. You know, it, it does. It absolutely does. Yeah. I mean, it's just sort of like when you're acting. You know, you, you get to a certain age and a, a certain level of skill. Uh-huh. And you know you're probably not going to embarrass yourself. You know, when you were a kid, you know, geez, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, you know, I'll never be able to walk down the street again. And you get older and you know, yeah, I may not be a genius, but I probably, you know, I will find a way to play this that won't be too horrible, and I'll be able to hold my head up when I walk out of the studio. You know? So in, in these 15 years as a novelist, what have you, it sound, it's, a, it's a stupid question, but what have you learned about yourself? It's not a stupid question at all. It's a really smart question. What have I learned about myself? Mm. 
I'm fascinated by mothers and daughters, okay. which is a theme in all of my books and especially in the new one that's out. Um, I'm fascinated by a question of can someone who's really dedicated to their work also be a good family member and friend? Do you have to sacrifice a personal life to really be dedicated to your work? And as a corollary, is it worth it? I, I mean, it's a question that I think just always fascinates me. Um, Do you have an answer to it? Um, no, not really. Okay. I tend to write. I I uh, I tend to write women who are very driven. Uh, who have kind of made the choice that that work comes first. Um, pay a price for that. I haven't, I, and I have a feeling that the reason I write them is because within limitations, that's how I've lived. I mean, I am married and I have stepchildren. I never had children. Uh, and I don't think I could have done both. Okay. So, and that's a very, that question, that question is very interesting to me. The question of can you, can you have it all and to what extent can you have, um, what extent can you have uh, as much of it as you can and is it, isn't it valuable that some people make the choice to to put their work first because otherwise, you know, we wouldn't have the arts. We wouldn't have a lot of things that I think sure. are very, very important. So that that's a question that, that interests me a lot. Um, <laughs> I'm very sentimental, and I never knew that. Um, and, I'm, and I'm very, very – what? What does that mean practically? What does that mean in a practical sense? Yeah. Um, hmm. In what way are you sentimental? In, in, or what are you sentimental about? Uh, I like... I think I basically believe people are kind and sweet. I, th I think I believe in the sweetness of human nature in a lot of very real ways. And even my bad guys tend to have, well, I have a couple that really don't have any redeeming qualities whatsoever. But by and large, my, even my bad guys tend to have something redeeming about them. In um, true so fashion, I would, I would imagine. Yeah. And I also, I'm also very interested in, oh, <clears throat> I think I learned a lot from the soaps. And I think I think there is a tendency in me to write, to structure a lot the way the soaps structure, or used to. Okay. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, but I, I am, I'm, I'm big on happy endings. I, I, I don't think I slap them on arbitrarily. I think they're organic. But I really don't like to stop writing until I've come up with something <laughs> that's kind of upbeat. so that you can walk away without feeling oh god you know I I don't want that Um, I want to make people laugh and I want to make people cry Um, and that's probably more important to me than making them think although I do like to throw in a few ideas of my own But, but, but basically I want it to be an entertaining good read I mean I think that's it. I think more than anything else, I want to entertain. I I just want people to have a good time. And I kind of think that I leave the sort of deeply intellectual and heavy stuff to somebody else. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> Absolutely. Tell me, tell me who entertains you. Who's a good read to you? Oh wow. Um, I'm I'm very uh, well. I like Pat Conroy. I like Rick Bragg. Uh, I like. Let me see. Who else do I like? Um, Pat Conroy, Rick Bragg, Jane Austen, Louisa May Alcott. You know those girls. But I I also love. Escapist stuff, and I like Philippa Gregory, and I like Harlan Coben. I love to read Harlan Coben. Uh, Janet Ivanovich is fun, um, and I happen to like a British uh, romance novelist who wrote about the Regency, but she was a don at Oxford, so she really knew her history, and her name was Georgette Heyer. She's not very well known in this country, but she was hu- she's huge to this day in Great Britain. Okay. And I like her stuff a lot. I'm looking at my shelves right here. Love Dorothy Parker. Uh, yeah, that's kind of it, maybe. Okay. Oh, and Willie the Shake. Uh, <laughs> I like, I love Shakespeare. So let's talk about your latest novel, Serendipity. It just came out last month. Yes, um, sir. Let's, let's give people an idea of what the story's about. Okay. It's four generations of Italian-American women. Um, my background is Italian-American. Um, it's about a, uh, it's about a young woman whose mother was a huge philanthropist uh, who who was was famous as a kind of woman who not only talked the talk but walked the walk. She she gave up everything and and gave it all to charity. I mean she 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 came out of she'd had a very uh, successful. Her late husband had been. On broad, had been a Broadway writer, and she she kind of you know you think Rogers and Hammerstein kind of money, and she gave it all up and lived in a one bedroom apartment with her daughter on the Upper West Side, and and gave most of her money to a uh, a shelter, and 
run by the archdiocese and but there are some very strange mysteries about her uh, she she was a roman catholic and and gave money to the church and all of that but never went to communion always went to mass and never went to communion um she was always telling her daughter about how, you know, we we get press and we get a lot of attention in the press for the things that we do, but we must never let it go to our heads and we must never court the press. Remember, we do it for the people who need us. We don't do it for our own uh, adulation. And yet she... The, when after the mother died, the daughter found that there was a famous dress. The, the mother, to every charity event, wore this one gown that had been made sometime in the 70s, and that was the same gown that she always wore, and it kind of was her trademark. And then the daughter finds, when she's going through her mother's things, that her mother actually had had three or four copies of the gown made over the years. And... Uh, so it was kind of like, what? <laughs> you know, what is this? And the daughter knows nothing about her past, and she starts on a journey to find out about her mom's family. Wow. And her father died when she was two, and her mother died, you know, I think three or four weeks before the book actually opens. So she go and her mother never wanted to talk about her father. And her grandmother had been a big musical comedy star in the 50s and 60s, which of course was a fabulous time for theater in Manhattan. But the real story is goes back to New Haven, Connecticut and this line of women starting with the present day girl's great-grandmother and going straight through. Uh, Mafalda, Lucia, Rose, and Carrie. Carrie being the girl today. And it goes through all these different women um, as they handed down certain traits and fought with each other and helped each other, loved each other and despised each other and did all the things that mothers and daughters do. And Carrie finds out about her own history and her mother's history. Wow. Well, it sounds like an absolutely fantastic read. Um, well, I hope you will read it. I, absolutely. I, I, You know, I can't wait to get my hands on it. It's, Please do. I know it's do. at Amazon. I know and, it's on Amazon. Yes, it is. And and let me know what you think of it when you read it. Would I you certainly mind? will do. I certainly Just will. Just email me and let me know. I, I certainly will. Um, as I said, I know it's on Amazon, and there's a link to the book in uh, my show's website, www.blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. There's a link. God, oh, thank you, Brandon. That is so cool of you to do that for my book. And Thank I assume you. it's also available at Barnes and Noble and, and Borders. It's, and it's, yeah, it's it's well. Hey, actually, it's available at Target, and oh, it's available cool. at Stop and Shop, guys. I mean, you know, it's like really out there. They've they've done a fabulous job of promoting it. It's at Target. It's at Stop and Shop. Uh, I found it. At, I found some at my local Sam's Club. Oh, fantastic. Uh, yeah, it seems to be just all over the place. So it's and it's and it's like a reader's circle recommendation and it's and the library live journal said, you know, libraries should buy it. So it's kind of all over. 
and hopefully people will pick it up and read it. It must be a great thrill. Well, it's it's a lot of fun. And this one we did as a an original trade paperback as opposed to a hardcover because we figured uh, last fall when we were making the decision that, you know, with the economy, uh, you know, I just felt like with this economy coming up, I, I just think it's unrealistic to to ask people to buy hardcovers. So, so this is a this is a, a it's a beautiful book. It's beautifully done, but it is an original trade paperback. You know, with things like the Kindle and the electronic books that are that are coming out, and you know, kind of major bookstores in a serious state of flux. Yeah. Uh, how worried are you about the future of publishing? Is is there a worry, or or are things oh, sure. still on a pretty even keel? Oh sure, that's it's very worrisome. Um, oddly, I think maybe the future will be some of that electronic stuff. I mean, I I think people who like to read books will always read books, sure. um, and there will not be any other source of entertainment for them. Uh, but I think I think the days of of the hardcover, except for that book that you would buy to be a, a gift for somebody, um, maybe, I mean, in Europe right now, it's mostly original trade paperback. I think that may be the wave of the future. Um, I think it's going to be a smaller market. I, I But I think there will be a place for those of us who like to read books and buy books. And I think that the electronic stuff is definitely going to help. Uh, anything, any way that people can can get their hands on it is is going to be um, is going to be helpful for us, for those of us who like to write and and like to read. And it's going to be a much smaller, more competitive market, which Absolutely. is too bad. You know, with with entire generations of of kids being raised. You know, to be computer savvy from you know kindergarten on. Yeah. Everything is changing. I mean, television is changing. What we're doing right here, right now, online is is you know it's. it's yeah, it's amazing. It's, it's completely amazing, and you know, it's it's going to affect every single facet of our lives. Uh, it already yeah. has, and and it's only going to continue. And so you know, you you wonder where where things like television, books, magazines, newspapers, where these things that have been signatures in our lives will be in 10 years, 20 years. It's fascinating. Well, you know, it's interesting. They, they used to send me out on book tours. And I would go at great expense and travel around the country and stay in hotels and go into stores and sign the books and sit in the store and, and do a signing or a reading. And... They have decided with this book of mine, with the exception of a very few places that I'm going to pretty much on my own, having arranged it myself, my publisher is mostly doing promotion on the Internet. And this book is doing phenomenally well. Um, Whereas the books that they did, the much more old-fashioned kind of promotion, uh, did not do nearly as well. Mm-hmm. And I I think it's just that we're all understanding that one blog, one um, 
you know, one phone call like this that you and I are having right now hopefully gets my name out in a new way to a whole bunch of people. Absolutely. You know, and we don't have to go through talk, you know, uh, some radio program that has to have a certain level of celebrity on my part in order for me to get booked on the show. That kind of thing, I think this is, there's more of it, but it it allows people to zone in on stuff that interests them. Mm-hmm. And I, I and just as, think as, it... As we were talking about before, before the show, this this episode of my show is archived forever. So, right. you know, anybody can access it forever. Right, exactly. As and opposed to, say, a, you know, a talk radio show where you hear it once and then you never... You never can find. You never can access it again. Yeah, and, and and there's every possibility that somebody who you know might not have thought about wanting to hear what I had to say or what you and I have to say to each other, you know, as a top priority, might at some point say, you know, I'll, nothing I'll else going on. Yeah. I'll try to see what that was about. Absolutely. I go, yeah, well, that was kind of interesting. I mean, it wouldn't have been interesting enough to cancel everything else I had going on at that moment. <laughs> but right now, yeah, what the hell? And I'll, I'll, I'll listen. I, it kind of, you know, as, as you and I said at the beginning of this discussion, way back in the early days of daytime, when it was kind of like, wild and woolly and there wasn't a lot of oversight and in some ways there wasn't an enormous amount of financial pressure it reminds me a little of that it's kind of grassroots and what you know what sticks sticks kind of and you know as you said you know when somebody when somebody does happen upon this show and you know, if it does impel them to seek out you and me both, I mean, you know, your books and, say, my blog or other shows of mine, uh, right. you know, it's win-win for everybody. I mean, it's, you know. Yeah, and yeah. it's a win-win for the people that that got exposed to something they would not have otherwise gotten exposed to. Sure, and, and you know, that kind of word of mouth is key to everything. Yes, and it is, it, it, and it is exactly that. It's, a, it's, a, it's an enhancement of word of mouth. It's so much more direct. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think that we're also going to wind up with publishing. I think we'll probably wind up with people. I mean, a big movement, I believe, is self-publishing now. Uh, it's it's not as big as I think it's going to be one day. And again, you you may have to you you may have to discard a lot of stuff that doesn't interest you but there may be somebody who will write a book and if they were going through a classic publishing route that book would have to sell 20 or 30,000 copies before it would start to even begin to pay itself back maybe you know you you self-publish it and it sells 2,000 copies and that's enough to make it worth your while I mean, they. I think the internet has got to figure out a way to earn some money, don't you? And I think, I think, yeah, absolutely. And I think they're they're slowly getting there, and they're only gonna they're only gonna get better at it. I mean, 
you know, it, it feels like well, it's been around forever, but but this whole internet boom is still very much in its infancy when you when you uh, compare it to things like the printing press and the television and the radio and you know yeah. things that have been around, things that really have been around for two hundred years. This thing has only been around for ten years on a mass level, so right. you know it, it's still very much in its infancy in terms for of instance, what it's capable of and what it can do. Now, when you do your show, do you get any kind of advertising? Is there anything that you get as um, financial compensation? Not as yet, but I've only been around for a couple of months. So um, okay. But I think that some of the some of the bigger shows on this network absolutely do. Absolutely. How how do they do that? Uh, you know, you know it's based on ownership and based on uh, what they call hits online. Um, you know, I I I'm not really well versed enough in it to know how it really works. It works, yeah. Of it, but but I know that some of the bigger shows uh, are, are absolutely advertiser supported and 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 they get you know uh, some kind of financial stipend based on what they do. Really? But, but well, then there you go. I mean, see, that's that's the thing. I mean, I think I think again, you know, to me that you know when you when you have people who you know to go back to acting for a second we have people that are making $300,000 an episode i'm sorry personally i don't think anybody needs to make that kind of money so if you can work out a way for people to make a decent living in this new arena that doesn't have to pay as much but it can just pay something then I think everybody wins because we can get a lot more product. It can be a lot more specifically tailored to different people's tastes and enjoyment level. And a lot more people on my end of it can work. They may not be wildly wealthy, but they can work and support themselves doing what they love. So that, it seems to me, is the big, I mean, hopefully to me, that's the big potential of of this kind of way of delivering information. Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, I have had such great fun talking to you. Yeah, I've, me I've too, Brandon. Thank much you. Much longer than I intended to. But uh, what a great thrill this was speaking with you, and and I want you to know that you're welcome here anytime. Oh, Brandon, thank you so much. I had such a wonderful time. You, it I'm, was just I I I. Talk to you real often. Thank you for letting me. I had a wonderful time. I want to tell everybody one more time that you can find Louise at louiseshafer.com. That's S-H-A-F-F-E-R.com. Uh, her brand new book is called Serendipity, and it's available at Amazon. It's available at all your major bookstores, uh, and as we just discovered, at Target, at Sam's Club. Pretty much anywhere that sells books, you're, you're almost guaranteed to find a copy of this book. And I encourage everybody to pick it up because it sounds like an amazing read. And email me and tell me what you thought. Certainly, absolutely. <laughs> uh, before I let you go, can I get you to do a promo for my show right quick? Sure. As long as it includes the words Brandon's Buzz and Louise Schaefer, the rest of it's totally up to you. Okay. And I'm recording right now, so anytime you're ready, shoot. Okay, I just had the most fun in the world doing Brandon's Buzz. This is Louise Schaefer. It's a fabulous podcast, and it's a great, great way to spend some time. Brandon is just the best.
fantastic. Thank you so, so much. Thank you so much, Brandon. The fantastic Louise Schaefer, everybody, on Brandon's Buzz. April 14th, coming to an end uh, right here on Brandon's Buzz. As I said, tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific, with the fantastic Billy Vera of Billy Vera and the Beaters. Um, come on back for that. He's going to talk about music and songwriting and art and life. It's going to be a great conversation with a great guy. Uh, I encourage you to check that out. So that's tomorrow afternoon, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, www.blogtalkradio.com slash Brandon's Buzz. Um, uh, and at that website, you can listen to old shows, you can download old shows, and you can leave comments, and you can send me an email and let me know what you think. And please do. I, I As I said, I encourage all comments, positive and negative. Uh, you can also find me at my blog, brandonsbuzz.com, and you can find me on iTunes. Type Brandon's Buzz in the iTunes Music Store search box. Scroll down to the podcast section. Uh, click on the Brandon's Buzz button. There it pops up. You can download old shows individually as podcasts, or you can subscribe to the show and have the new episodes automatically download to your iTunes Music Library when they're posted. Uh, so please do that. Uh, uh, I've, got, I've got great guests coming up. I've got Jan Arden coming up. I've got Catherine uh, 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 Hicklin coming up. I've got Jimmy Demers coming up. All kinds of fabulous people. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it, the thing is growing every day, and I appreciate all of you for coming along for the ride uh, and having great fun right here with me at Brandon's Buzz. Please stay tuned for Brandon's Buzz. I'm Joan Van Ark, and the buzz is hot. So if you feel that you just can't take it, and your world isn't what it seems, don't forget that life can be what you make it. Better when you live on a street of dreams. Hey, this is Nia Peoples, and you're with Brandon's Buzz, the place to be. Hey, this is Peggy Scott Adams, and guess what? I am buzzing with my man, Brandon on Brandon Buzz. This is Michael Brainerd on Brandon's Buzz. Peggy Buzz. This is Maya Bialik, and you are lucky enough to be listening to Brandon's Buzz. I'm done.